0: everyone. And welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat. To intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Natish Sood, and we cover the kind of up and coming technology of electroporation or pulse field ablation. Many of you know this is kind of the hot topic in electrophysiology right now. It seems to be a non-thermal, non-injury energy source that's been used successfully in the electrophysiologic field in order to isolate the pulmonary veins. And Dr. Sood was actually one of the first physicians in the U.S. to use this technology in the Medtronic Pivotals trial. So I thought, who better to go ahead and get into this technology than Dr. Sood? And so we cover the technology itself, the fundamentals of it, and then we also get into some of the recent data and the outcomes using this technology in pulmonary vein isolation. And then at the end, we get into his own platform, which is clubafib.com. And this is a platform that he uses to spread information regarding lifestyle choices and lifestyle changes and how they affect atrial fibrillation. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Natish Sood. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of All Things AFib podcast. I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with my friend and electrophysiologist today, Dr. Natish Sood. It's uh, great to see you again. Thanks for joining us. So um, as a way of introduction, Dr. Sood is an electrophysiologist with the South Coast Physicians Cardiology Group in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, and he's also a clinical assistant professor of medicine of science at Brown University. So he is a co-author of over 35 peer-reviewed journal articles, including a most recent New England Journal of Medicine article entitled Cryoabloon Ablation as Initial Therapy for Atrial Fibrillation. He was an investigator in the STOP-AF first trial. But that's not why I asked him to join us today. So actually, his most recent claim to fame is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you telling me once that you were the first electrophysiologists in the United States to use, and I'll say, quote, ablation, because we'll talk about that in a little bit, but electroporation or pulse field ablation in the clinical setting. So I thought, who better to kick off this discussion of post-field ablation than with my friend, Dr. Sood. So thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Armin. This is a great pleasure to be here. And in fact, yes, we were the first center and, and I did the first case as part of the Medtronic PFA study, which was the first clinical ID study for uh, PFA in the world. So that's been a great honor. And since then, we have done about 33 cases and stand as the second highest uh, center in the world on PFA in atrial fibrillation management.
0: So I'm happy to talk to you about pulse field. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's kind of take it back a step. Can you kind of start our discussion with why was there this quest for PFA to even begin with? Maybe talk a little bit about the more traditional ablative therapies or or thermal injury therapies, you know, RF, cryo. Can you maybe talk to us about how those have progressed and why Why even PFA? Why are we even looking for that? That's a great question. And
1: our AFIB ablation is an interesting field in my mind. In 1999, it was the first time that in human, there was proof of pulmonary veins being the trigger for atrial fibrillation, and the first procedure for atrial fibrillation and or non-invasively, which is pulmonary vein isolation or electrical isolation of the pulmonary veins, was actually done in two thousand three. So this is a very young procedure. We are, you know, not even twenty years into it. As far as ablative therapies go, interestingly, I feel like pulse field. Is almost going back to the first ablation. Most people don't realize that the first ablation done, sort of non-invasively inv- and not open-heart surgery in man, was done in 1981 at UCLA by Dr. Scheinman. and it was it was sort of a version of pulse field. What was done was the A-V node was ablated with DC current application of repeated DC current, causing I guess electroporation and tissue damage. Since then. Treatment evolved, obviously, and there was radio frequency ablation. More recently, what's called cryoablation. Both these techniques, even though one is heat, one is cold, in the end cause thermal injury, right? There's thermal injury, destruction of the tissue, and the cell death or tissue destruction is via a process called necrosis. The problem with necrosis, be it via cryo or radio frequency or heat, is that there is risk of collateral damage of tissue. Hence, there has been this quest for non-therapy or, or technique that will lead to the least amount of collateral damage and, in turn, complications. If you look at complications from atrial fibrillation ablation, they, re, they range between you know, 4 to 6 to 10%, not just collateral damage, but overall complication rate. And there has been a quest to decrease that. Then we come on to what pulsed field is. In simple terms, pulsed field is creating nanopores in plasma cell membranes. Now, how are these nanopores, nanopores done? They are done by application of a high energy electrical field. This high energy electrical field causes tiny little pores and cell membrane change the cell organelles leak out. There is change in voltage across the cell membrane, and this leads to cell death of this abnormal tissue via a process of apoptosis versus necrosis. That is the critical difference between radiofrequency cryoablation versus pulse field ablation: is the necrosis versus apoptosis.
0: Would it be fair to summarize that as saying? With RF and cryo, you as the interventionalist, you as the electrophysiologist, or even surgeons, when when surgeons use RF or cryo, we're killing the tissue, essentially, Mm -hmm. versus electroporation or pulse field ablation you create an environment where the cell kills itself this natural process that the body's doing all the time right the body's always kind of going through this apoptosis process in its natural kind of state would that be a general summary would, would that be yes yeah
1: that's absolutely right you know just like skin like nails and some cell membranes and tissue in the in our gut it is the same process it's the body's natural way of sort of regenerating healing as you may call it. And that's one of the reasons for specificity of pulse field to the tissue and less collateral damage.
0: Right. So let's get into that a little bit. So typically as a electrophysiologist, what structures are you concerned about as far as collateral damage in your typical kind of left atrial procedures? Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. So the
1: goal of ablation in the left atrium is destruction of the connection between the left atrium and pulmonary veins. That is true for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation patients, which means patients who go in and out of AFib and AFib lasts for less less than seven days. In patients who have more persistent atrial fibrillation, we target not just the pulmonary veins, but some extra venous tissue as well with the back wall or the posterior wall of the left atrium being the commonest site of ablation. Now let's talk about things that are close to these structures. Well, the food pipe or the esophagus lies right behind the left atrium. It's really in contact with the back wall of the left atrium. This really limits our lesions. As you know, thermal injury leads to collateral uh, destruction or affects collateral tissue by causing tissue necrosis. So if there is damage the esophagus during delivery of any kind of thermal energy that can create esophageal mucosal damage and in severe cases lead to what's called an atrioesophageal fistula meaning a connection between the left atrium and the esophagus which has a 50 percent risk of death if that was to happen during ablation now thankfully the risk of that is low it's one percent or less but again in a procedure that's meant to primarily improve quality of life, I feel, and almost pundits feel, that should be a non-issue. We should never even have that discussion. So the esophagus is the critical part. The second one is the veins themselves. If you ablate too far inside the veins, what can happen is you can cause the veins to stenose or shrink, which then leads to shortness of breath because there's not good venous drainage into the left atrium. The third structure of concern is the phrenic nerve. The phrenic nerve or the nerve of the diaphragm goes just in front of the right-sided pulmonary veins. And especially with cryoablation and with radiofrequency, there can be damage to the phrenic nerve as we are ablating the tissue. Now looking at the last of the whole piece of the puzzle, the left atrium itself, some have questioned, well, how much ablation is too much? At what point? Do you destroy enough left atrial tissue that even if you're in normal rhythm, there may not be much left atrial function, so to say. So if you look at these two things, if the left atrium is destroyed so much that there is no or there's not enough muscle left to function, that is called as a stiff left atrial syndrome, meaning the left atrium is so stiff from all the ablation, it's unable to relax. And again, leads to shortness of breath, fatigue, which is the downside and which is a really reason to do an ablation. So if you look at all these different features, animal studies, uh, there was a a nice study done out of Mount Sinai by Dr. Perut, which looked at ablating directly on the phrenic nerve, directly on the, or looking at an ablating at the pulmonary vein, right adjacent to the esophagus. Animal studies have also been done looking at ablation directly on the carotid arteries. And what they found was that there was sparing of the esophagus membrane, there was sparing of the phrenic nerve, and there was no damage to the blood vessels during pulse field versus radio frequency. I'm going to elaborate a little bit more and on the blood vessel piece of it. If you compare pulse field to radio frequency, a lot of times incomplete lesions, we've talked about safety, but let's talk about incomplete lesions. There is a 15-20% risk of an incomplete lesion with radio frequency or cryo but why does that why does that happen that happens because these blood vessels these tiny blood vessels within the cell membrane act as a heat sink when they act as a heat sink it leads to incomplete lesions because of the blood flow and the blood acts as a sort of a cooling or a heat cooling source or a heat sink that is true for any type of thermal injury but pulse field as it's an electrical field and it's non thermal There is no sort of relevance of the cooling or the heat sink. Hence, pulse field ablation, if you look at MRI data, appears as a more homogeneous ablation versus radio frequency appears as more of a patchy ablation lesion. Also, in again in the MRI data, if you look at intravascular or intra-sort of tissue hemorrhage or bleeding, there is intramural or intra-tissue bleeding and disruption of the microvascular tissue in the left atrium with thermal sources of energy and with pulse field, there is no intramural hemorrhage. So those are all really positive features of pulse field versus radiofrequency. And last but not the least, I'm sorry, I'm boring you with... uh, No, not at all. This this is fascinating. No, uh, thank you so so much. much, I have so much MRI data, but there's a very good publication in EP Europace, that was just published by uh, Nakatani uh, et al., which looked at MRI data comparing pulse field versus radio frequency ablation. So, the last piece of this is atrial mechanics. So, what did they do? They looked at late gadolinium enhancement or LGE on MRI comparing pulse field to radio frequency. As I mentioned, they found more homogeneous LGE uptake in pulse field versus more patchy in radiofrequency due to that cooling sink of those tiny blood vessels. What they also found was that at three months, a lot of this late gallium enhancement actually got better or disappeared with pulse field ablation versus with radiofrequency, the fibrosis stayed and the late gallium enhancement was persistent, which then leads to atrial mechanics. Atrial mechanics are acutely affected by both pulse field and radiofrequency as you burn the tissue. But in three months, the pulse field improved completely back to normal while the radiofrequency did not. All these patients had a repeat procedure at three months and effectiveness of pulmonary venous isolation was similar between radiofrequency and pulse field. But the difference being recovery of tissue and of tissue health, surrounding tissue health, had completely recovered with persistent isolation of the veins in pulse field versus the lack thereof with frequency,
0: And that's really interesting because typically when we think about heat sinks, we think of them more on the macro level, right? When we're using cryo or RF, whether it's endocardial or epicardial, we always think of that heat sink being the blood going through the heart, that high cardiac output, that five, six liters per minute. It's really interesting to think about At the micro level, those blood vessels acting as heat sinks and how electroporation or pulse field bypasses that whole issue. Creating the pores is what leads to the apoptosis, which leads to the the functional barrier, if you will, the scar that, that you're forming. That's really interesting. Completely agreed. And, you know, pulse
1: field is not a new technology, even though we as cardiologists, you know, you and I are excited about pulse field, it's sort of the new kid on the block. But pulse field has been around for quite a while. Pulse field initially, if you there's sort of many different sort of variants. There is the unipolar versus bipolar. There is the duration of the pulse. There is the voltage of the pulse, you know, the amount, how high the voltage is and how long it should be applied to. That's where all these companies are working on what would be a good sort of voltage and duration. Now, what does pulse field do? Well, at the lowest level, it does nothing. If the voltage is really small and the duration is really you know short, then at a slightly higher level, it causes what's called reversible electroporation, meaning it causes holes in the cells, ultra-nano holes or pores, which then seal off and the cell can regain function. But what's the purpose of that? That has been used quite for quite a while for sterilization, for example. It has also been used in cancer treatment. That's where pulse field is adapted from. In cancer treatment... These strong drugs, which cannot normally cross the cell membrane or the barrier for neoplastic or cancerous tissue, pulse field is given to form transient pores so that drugs can cross into the cancerous tissue and then destroy the cells, which they're normally not able to. Then it also led to ablation of the neoplastic tissue, which is the most recent application of pulse field, which is a reversible or the irreversible electroporation, so to say. So from there, it was adapted to the heart.
0: Gotcha. Let's talk about that a little more. So let's talk about the data that's out right now. So as as far as I understand it, using pulse field has in the trial setting, at least has been applied to pulmonary vein isolation. And we have up to one year results. Is that correct? Do you want to talk about what those results look like and Sure.
1: Yeah. So there has been a good publication from Dr. Reddy at Mount Sinai, which looked at one-year results from pulse field ablation. Now, you have to realize that they were going through their own iteration of unipolar or uniphasic, biphasic, the duration. Finally, when they had their optimal biphasic waveform for the right duration, in those patients, when they looked at one year, they remapped at three months, there was 96% persistence of pulmonary venous isolation at three months. They also looked at one-year results. And at one year, there was 91% freedom from arrhythmia, which is, you know, quite a lot. In most other clinical studies, in the best setting, the best we've had so far is about 75%. Again, small sample size. So you have to take that with a grain of salt, non-randomized data, but still very compelling. Also at three months, there was. Ablation done beyond the veins as well. And at three-month data, only about 12% patients had regression of the ablation lesions. So all of this suggests that irreversible electroporation is feasible, durable. The one last thing that the studies have shown is the left atrial dwell time, or the amount of time it takes to do the procedure, is also significantly shorter. With the pulse field, the average is about 90 minutes, give or take and with uh, cryoblation it's improved to about 120 minutes give or take and radiofrequency is the longest about 145 to 150 minutes now why is this important because longer time in the left atrium longer anesthesia times and also a higher risk of microemboli and microstrokes the longer you spend time in the left atrium
0: so you've done 33 days you said correct yes so what do you think the learning curve is on using PFA?
1: So the learning curve-wise, there is the catheter technology, meaning what catheter you're using to apply energy. And then there is understanding the delivery of pulse field itself. Okay. For catheter types, there are multiple clinical studies, but about four or five main companies which are doing them. Ferrapulse, which was recently acquired by Boston Scientific, Abbott, Labs and Medtronic have a single shot delivery catheter. Afera has more of a focal and a combination RF PFA catheter. And there's another small company called Galaxy, which also has a focal PFA catheter. So these are all catheters used for energy delivery. Being in the EP world, being in the surgical field, being used to catheters, it's just a matter of getting used to manipulation, moving the catheter, which I think has a learning curve of about four or five cases. And again, I think this catheter technology will improve with time. As far as understanding the pulse field energy delivery, the system itself consists of a generator, which is attached to the catheter. And there's you select the waveform, select the energy, and you're able to deliver the energy. So it's a reasonably short learning curve. What I think is going to be critical is understanding the durability and the feasibility of PFA in isolating the pulmonary veins, what the real world durability data is, what is that threshold for reversible and irreversible electroporation. You do have to realize that ideal zone of delivering energy without collateral damage is true for radio frequency and for PFA as well. In PFA, that zone tends to be a lot broader. So there's a lot broader safety margins, so to say, but If PFA is given at a very high voltage and high duration, it can also result in thermal injury. So it's not that thermal injury is impossible, but it is less likely. And that magic potion or that magic dose, which causes irreversible electroporation without causing any thermal damage is what will be the learning curve of different techniques. The other thing we have to also uh, learn is what is the difference between myocardial tissue in the atrium versus the ventricle. In the ventricle especially, there are many areas which are very close to the coronary arteries like the LV summit, a common place for epicardial VTs and PVCs. Also, there is the mid-myocardial or the mid-septal ventricular tachycardia circuits and circuits on the outside of the epicardium of the heart. If PFA, which goes to about 16 to 18 millimeters, can be used to deliver focal energy This might negate going or around the outside of the heart, which is a high-risk procedure. It may also help us to ablate in the LV summit without affecting the coronary arteries, the blood vessels, because if you ablate too close to them, you can cause them to stenose or narrow. So, And the last piece of the puzzle is scar versus normal tissue. Pulse field, if you compare scar versus normal tissue, delivery and acceptance of pulse field energy also depends on the water content of the cells. So the impedance and the conductivity. As of now, at least based on animal studies, if you apply pulse field to scar and normal tissue, the scar, which has less water content, tends to sort of act as more of a sink for this pulse field, which may, in fact, may be beneficial in the realm of BT ablations where it's a scar-based substrate. In the case of atrial substrate, that may or may not be relevant because the pulmonary venous antrum doesn't have scar but uh, there could be scar in the anterior wall or the posterior wall, which may not be your primary target. So all of these nuances are what we really need to understand and learn as we go along in our pulse field journey.
0: Just at first glance, do you think there's any reason why you couldn't apply PFA epicardially? At
1: first glance, there's absolutely no reason. There's absolutely no reason why pulse field cannot be applied epicardially. One nice thing is that PFA, or pulse field, does not cause inflammation of adipose tissue when applied in the heart. As you know, adipose tissue can be a barrier to application of radiofrequency energy in the epicardial side, especially in patients with atrial fibrillation. So that should be less of an issue. I think the future is really application of pulse field in the epicardial space as well.
0: I was thinking, so I'm at a center where we do a lot of hybrid work, right? We do a lot of endo-epi work. And two questions for you. Do you think pulse field will address the epiendo bridges that seem to be kind of the hot issue right now? Do you think it's a technology that will be able to penetrate transmurally and deal with those? That's the first question. The second question is, do you think it still creates the environment by which, let's say, a patient had endocardial PFA? Would they still be a candidate for epicardial RF, let's say, in the kind of that standard hybrid approach so you can attack those however you like?
1: Yeah, I think that those are very, very interesting questions. The epi-endodysynchrony is very close to my heart. For example, you know, I'll give you a a quick case study we just did this week where we used uh, ultra high-dimensional 3D mapping with arrhythmia catheter in the epicardial space in our first case. That goes down to about 001 as the threshold of the cutoff, which is very, very, very fine and very detailed, and the thresholds cut really low. The surgeon did the epicardial mapping, then applied the atricure's episense device on the epicardial space in a sort of a suction, you know, atrial suction unipolar energy. Then the surgeon did repeat mapping and there was complete attenuation of electrograms. When we went on the endocardial side, interestingly, there was a very nice dense area of electrogram attenuation in the mid-posterior wall, but the pulmonary venous antrum seemed like there was still a lot of a signal, a lot of electrograms. But with just application of a few cryo lesions, all that area completely sort of became gray or as we call it attenuation of electrograms or scar tissue, meaning that the surgeon may have applied energy partially or three quarters of the way, which was finished endocardially. Will that be done by PFA? I think time will tell. The other problem is is that sort of a crisscross pattern where the fibers from the epicardium go directly across to the endocardium. Most people believe that not to be the case. Most people believe that the fibers in the epicardium cross at a diagonally. So if you're ablating in the epicardium in one spot, that does not mean that you are ablating on the endocardium directly across. Interesting. So I think that some of the epi-endo- Problems that we see on the roof line with the septopulmonary bundle and the atrial bundles being separated by fatty tissue and the fat acting as a heat sink may be prevented by using pulsal ablation. But on the posterior wall, I don't think that it's a linear fiber orientation. So an epi. And endo ablation might still be the way to go, I think time will tell. I can tell you from other side, having done posterior wall ablations with cryo and RF, when you go to the epicardial space, and there's been some case reports showing this, despite being completely silent on the posterior wall endocardially, there is still signal on the epicardial side, which goes to show that either they're not transmural or the fiber orientation is, is crisscross and not completely linear across from each other.
0: Right. And I guess this is something that we'll kind of all figure out together. Another question I had for you, since PFA seems to be such a robust non-thermal ablative therapy, some people talk about the idea that as you isolate the posterior wall or the left superior pulmonary vein, that as you kind of creep towards that orifice of the left atrial appendage, that you may inadvertently isolate the left atrial appendage during this therapy. Do you think that's a real issue? What are some techniques you might recommend to mitigate that as you've done so many of these already?
1: Yes, I think those are those are real issues. And one of the things we've done is we've incorporated 3D mapping into our procedures. Initial experience with PFA was done based on just x-ray and you know ice imaging, which is helpful. But with 3D mapping, what we have done is we have managed to define the PFA catheter on the 3D map, define the appendage, define the left upper pulmonary vein. And certainly those are the, the main ways you can try to avoid it. Again, if you're bleeding on the anterior wall of the left atrium eventually with the focal catheter or with a sort of a single-shot catheter, trying to stay away from the appendage as far as possible, unless, of course, you're trying to isolate the appendage, are ways to sort of mitigate that possibility.
0: Right. And so do you think with the use of Amulet, with the use of Watchman, even with the use of the clip, do you think those would have any effect on PFA use? They shouldn't.
1: Just like we do with our cryo and radiofrequency ablations, post-devices, post-clips uh, and post, you know, watchman's, there really is no real difference. Sometimes with cryoblation the left upper pulmonary vein anatomy seems to be a slightly more challenging to use the big balloon, but for the most part, they should not interfere. One of the sort of cons as not to say that there are many of pulse field though, however, is this big surge of uh, micro bubbles that happens during delivery. One of the questions also arises is, will it cause microemboli more than uh, traditional radio frequency or cryoablation, Again, time will tell, but certainly the amount of microbubble creation is, is much higher. There are some small studies looking at a combination of ultra cold critical level cryo right. combination with pulse field, the adagio catheter, which you know, sort of cools the tissue first and then applies pulse field, which negates the microbubble sort of formation. But again something that we will find out with all these clinical studies.
0: Right. I mean, it definitely seems that if it truly is kind of this this holy grail non-thermal technique where you can minimize or essentially omit all these thermal complications that we worry about, as long as we safely kind of progress through all these iterations, it seems like something that patients can obviously benefit from greatly. Just we all have to kind of get through the the knowledge curve together more, more than the learning curve. You know, it seems like once kind of all the protocols are dialed in, this could be something quite promising for the field in general. Well, gosh, that was a fantastic conversation. You covered a lot. You actually knocked all my questions out as I, as you were kind of talking to me. So I don't think we left much on the table. Is there anything else that you'd you'd like listeners to know about, either you, your program, or anything with PFA or or unrelated to EP?
1: Sending off for sort of a final word, AFib, even though we have multiple new modalities, but AFib is a multifactorial disease. It's not just the pulmonary veins. It's not just the back wall. It's a lifestyle disease. And I find that there has been a huge surge of AFib in the population. Partly also because the consumer diagnostic tools have improved significantly, be it the Cardio Watch, be it Apple Watch. And like diabetes was with the continuous glucose monitors, AFib health and AFib management is now in the hands of patients. The data is, is available no matter what device you use. And there is you have control of modifying behavior, modifying lifestyle, and also managing and following your own AFib burden. So you can help physicians treat you better. Really, that concept is very close to my heart. And uh, we have a website called clubafib.com, C-L-U-B-A-F-I-B. And there's also an app on the Apple platform. What this does is it sort of syncs your Apple Watch data and your health data to the app. It has uh, many articles on what atrial fibrillation is, what ablation is, what monitors are, what kind of monitor you need, what the risk factors for AFib are. For example, one of the common ones that I guess ask about is is caffeine. And as you know, caffeine actually is helpful towards AFib versus causing AFib. And there's a lot of nice articles and written in a simple enough form. Again, role of pacemakers in AFib is a common question. Role of anticoagulation or stroke risk. All these things we have tried to answer on this platform So that patients can track their own AFib, educate themselves, and ask the relevant questions because AFib is such a vast topic that a 15, 20 minute doctor's visit can never really cover all the points. So I encourage people to use it, let us know how they like it and give us some feedback.
0: Definitely. Well, thanks for letting us know about that. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And it sounds like we have to do another episode on that as well. Seems like you have a lot of knowledge in that space. And I saw that you're also the director of AFib Wellness or the Wellness Center for AFib. So this might definitely be another episode that we'll have to do moving forward. So, well, thank you, Dr. Sued, for all your time. It was an absolute pleasure doing this podcast with you today. Thank you, Dr. Kankui. I look forward to our future conversations. Thanks. thanks so much. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcast and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.